In this episode of Unstructured Unlocked, Tom Wilde, CEO of Indico, sat down with Jim DeMarco from Microsoft to discuss the challenges and opportunities presented by generative AI in the insurance sector. The discussion revolved around the democratization of AI technology and the impact of AI on the insurance industry. Hope you enjoy it. Jim, great to talk to you today. Uh, a, a very fascinating topic, and I think some interesting uh, sort of points of convergence uh, with Microsoft and Indico uh, on this topic. So looking forward to, to chatting with you for the next hour here about it. Same here, Tom. It's great to chat with you again, as always. Excellent. Well, why don't we get started? Obviously, uh, generative AI and, and GPT is a, a white hot topic in the industry generally, and, and certainly in insurance um, holds great promise and, and some, some challenges as well. Uh, maybe it'd be good if we start with, with some context and history. Um, tell us a bit about Microsoft's journey, if you could, around generative AI uh, particularly. And then as we go through the conversation uh, today, we can, we can work our way towards opportunities and, and challenges within insurance specifically, but maybe set the table a bit for us around uh, Microsoft's history with, with this technology. Sure, happy to. Uh, anything, any question that ever asked, is asked about the history of Microsoft in any respect is going to have Bill Gates in the story somewhere, right? right. Uh, 1991, uh, Bill Gates created Microsoft Research. And actually what he was working on was the idea of how do we look at technology that would enable machines to learn. So our very first foray into research and uh, sort of in the sort of classical Bell Labs, sort of how do I understand what's going to happen next in industry, started with the question of what do we do to teach machines how to learn? That was some of the seminal work on machine learning and then ultimately artificial intelligence came out of that group. That was over 30 years ago. Right. I'm not going to give you a 30-year blow-by-blow of Microsoft's history. <laughs> Fast forward a bit, though. Over the course of the next 20 or so years, we developed a whole bunch of things around how to make uh, query more intelligent, how to understand machine, how, how do machines start asking questions better, and so on. And machine learning really evolved until the mid-20-teens as a way of looking at uh, discriminative models and understand how to, how to actually learn the next question from the last one. Around 2015 or so, we started getting much more into the use of neural networks and then into the cognitive AI space, uh, where we really got into looking at how do I enable the emulation of human actions like sight, touch, and so on. Uh, it's fair to say that that's also when uh, generative AI really got going. In fact, I, I credit Indico enormously in this because your co-founders actually wrote the the white paper that sort of generated the idea of generative AI. And that was an area where we sort of captured uh, the, not that Microsoft wasn't trying to be the, the, the leader or only player. We really saw some really brilliant players out there like, like your folks. Uh, so our role in this place was to really enable that to grow. And Microsoft's been very happy to be a key player in the last few years, really helping with the platforms that enable things like OpenAI and their whole model and what you've done with respect to generative AI as well. Uh, so that's a sort of the, the brief history of Microsoft in this space. Oh, that's terrific. Um, and when you think about why now, what's, what's the inflection point that caused, because as you point out, it's not that, and, and we can get into a bit, bit more of the, the history of generative AI in, in a moment here, but mm -hmm. it's not that the technology just arrived yesterday. So 
what's the inflection here? What what happened to cause you know GPT to become a, a dinner conversation? Uh, you know, this past year, as opposed to the years before. Yeah, I'd say there's there's three things that have happened, and I I desperately also want to point out Indico has been a significant player in this space right from the get go. So I want to come back to that and ask you to sort of lead through lead us through that. But I'll sure. sort of set the table a little bit if I can on it. The things that have made this such a hot topic now, one, compute got a whole lot cheaper. The cloud happened, essentially. We were able to bring the kind of compute that is needed to do these better, more complicated models to, to everybody. I, I think that's one point. Another is that the data has become more available. Uh, the idea of actually being able to ground data and having a large base that you can actually train models on, that, that, that's a sort of a factor of the cloud as well. Uh, the third one is that very clever people, and this is where it'd be really great to sort of talk a little bit about Indica, have figured out how to create a level of sophistication in artificial intelligence models uh, that has just heretofore not existed. And it's worthwhile sort of talking through that a little bit in sort of your perspective, because then we can talk through all right, what happened, the, the great moment of 2019 or 2022, where we suddenly saw, hey, what's this GPT stuff? That, if you wouldn't mind, would you sort of give us sort of the background on on Indico in that respect as well? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it 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 literally started as a a dorm room startup story, uh, which is which sort of you know uh, almost sounds uh, too good to be true. And and in a funny small world story, uh, the company was started at the Olin College of Engineering, which is about 500 yards out the window to my left here. So little little to my knowledge, while I was uh, working here. Uh, in my home office, you know, rolling back uh, seven, eight years ago, um, the Olin students had really seized on a, a strong interest in deep learning. Right? So deep learning had had sort of started to arrive as a commercially viable technology for many of the reasons you described, you know, the compute, the data um, and, and uh, the algorithms uh, to do that. You know, that that was sort of kicked off by the famous Google paper, attention is all you need. Um, and the transformer architectures that that power deep learning. And when I met the founders, um, and they described for me, you know, the the disruption that was coming with these transformer-based architectures, combined with, you know, my experience, 25 years in the enterprise software space, mostly in content technology. So I, I'd been using OCR and semantic uh, search and you know, studying the semantic web and all those things that held a lot of promise, but never quite delivered what we were all hoping as an industry, which is true, you know, so computer comprehension of, of unstructured data. Um, it, it certainly got my attention. And um, when we think about, you know, the, the sort of founding of, of the technology broadly and Indico specifically, um, the founders in Indico uh, created a paper uh, called DC GANs, which really kicked off um, this idea of generative AI and, and the ability for um, this technology to, to really comprehend natural language. Um, and that led to GPT, GPT-2, you know, GPT-3, um, and now we're you know, up to, to GPT-4 and, and beyond. So um, that was sort of the, the technology arc behind the company. What we really recognized is, and, and needed to, to point the technology as you do with any disruptive technology, pointed out a, a specific problem space that will add value, will drive an outcome for, for customers. Um, so we don't consider ourselves as much a deep tech company 
um, as we do uh, an application company, you know, specifically focused on a number of of automation capabilities around insurance and financial services, which we can get into here over the course of the conversation. It, it's it's cool. It's just, I'd love to tie these sort of two things together because we are now at this moment, as you said, and yep. one of the one of the things that that's theirs. We laid the groundwork technologically across you know frameworks and application sets and and the, really the sort of cool things that have gone on. But I think there's also been a fundamental change in the market that's actually happened. We finally got to the tipping point where stuff was usable. I think one of the challenges we faced in the AI space for decades has been we had to train people to be experts in the technology in order to use it. That's right. And we don't anymore. Now, you know, one of one of the things that we we really understand is that if we can actually use this technology in a manner where any human can go do it. Go do a Bing search, ask the chat window, go do a Bard search, you know, ask in chat format, uh, you know, something in human language and get a human response. It's now far more intuitive for end users. And that's the difference between, you know, that's why people, everybody can drive a car, but nobody can fly an airplane. It's because you have to do a lot of training to fly an airplane. You have to do some training to drive a car, too. That's fair. But at the same time, it's a whole lot less and a whole lot more people can do it. And I think. We've hit that tipping point. And one of the cool things now is, all right, well, what are the problems we want to solve? And I think that's one of the things that we're now shifting toward is we're shifting towards understanding that it's not about the tech. It's about the problem we solve. And that's where I'm really thrilled about what Indigo's done, because you guys have actually come in with this idea of, let me focus in on a fundamental problem. I got all kinds of data coming in. Insurance companies have pretty much more than anybody else all kinds of data coming in and then and now what do I do with it because I can't just sit there and manually sift through it like I've been doing for decades. Yeah, and just to build on that point, you know, one of the the core philosophies we have is is right in line with what what you were describing, um, how to make this technology accessible to a business user. You know, if you think about the history of of machine learning and data science, you know, rolling back a decade or so, to train machine learning to be proficient, you might need hundreds of thousands of, of ground truth samples uh, to teach it any kind of, uh, you know, to, for it to behave in any kind of proficient manner. That meant that practically speaking, it was out of reach of, of all but, you know, true research uh, profile type folks. What these technologies and Indico specifically have, have been able to do is we took that from tens or hundreds of thousands of examples down to just one or 200 examples. We added a point and click interface so that you didn't need a data science uh, background or expertise. And you could now build a highly proficient uh, custom machine learning model that could interpret your data um, you know, in a matter of a couple of days. So we took it from what was often six to 12 months to a couple of days. And I think generative AI has now reduced that even further, especially you know, with the partnership that that we announced uh, with you a couple months ago, that can now be taken down to, we think, hours. Um, so that is a dramatic shift and, and, and really uh, a democratization of access to this technology. The, the art of, of enterprise software uh, is making the, the complex and the powerful accessible to uh, you know, a business user. Because ultimately, I think what IT departments have learned is it's one thing to license these powerful technologies, but if they become yet another bottleneck in the deployment and use of these technologies, 
that only makes their life more difficult, not less difficult. So they're very eager now with the line of business to get technology that can be provisioned out to the end user. And I think, you know, Microsoft talks about it as the co-pilot. We often describe it as the bionic arm. Um, and, and I think that's a really apt way to describe it. And we can get into that in more detail. But, you know, thinking about it that way as opposed to a robot, which is going to come in and, and simply, you know, complete 100% of the task, which is which is not a realistic framing at this point. Yeah, but it sort of brings us to the point of like, what's going on industry-wise that's actually caused yeah. uh, this to be the flavor of the day, if you will. Yeah. I don't think it's the flavor of the day, frankly. I think it's the flavor of the decade. Uh, this is because this is exactly what we're seeing. And I, in the industry, particularly in, in, in the insurance patch, we're, we're not seeing people going, hey, I have tons of money I can go throw around these days. Anybody in the property casualty space has just didn't done an eye roll as they're listening to us on that one. Uh, because frankly, you know, costs have gone up. Loss ratios are going in the wrong direction. And the uh, in the life space, we're seeing uh, the need to get much more crisp about how we engage with customers because customers there are different. There's a different age when you have digital first customers than when you had customers who were buying the same insurance product that yes. mom and dad had, yep. right? And so, as we're seeing that shift, the problems that we need to solve need to be about driving efficiency, whether that's efficiency of conversation in life and in, in simpler ways to, to to apply for life insurance in the consumer space, or in commercial insurance submissions, or for that matter, handling uh, claims. It's a quite a quite an interesting need that is probably going to get. How do I put it? Uh, it's going to get worse before it gets better. In some respects, it's the, the need to drive down efficient. The need to drive efficiencies is pretty high. So this seems like it's not just the technology has met its moment. Also, I think the industry has met its moment. I wanted to get your take, what you're seeing, and then maybe talk a little bit about what I'm seeing too in that respect. That's perfect. Yeah, I, I think that we're at the we're sort of at the, uh, maybe not the end, but we're sort of at the, the peak of productivity around the innovation in, in engagement with customers. And that has really been driven by 10 to 20 years of investment in mobile, right? Mobile um, was absolutely transformative in how insurance companies um, engage and interact with their, their customers and prospects. As a, as a consumer, we can all relate to that, right? If you want to file a claim, if you want to you know, uh, interact with your insurance company, you're probably doing it through their mobile app. And, and that's by design. Now, in the in the middle office, the way I describe the middle office, where key decisions are made, should I underwrite this risk? Should I adjudicate this claim? Um, those have primarily been left out of that, that revolution, right? Mobile hasn't really driven that, especially in commercial lines. Commercial lines is still very much the way I describe it, a, a tower of Babel. You have a many-to-many -many relationship. You have a very large you know, broker uh, industry and a very large carrier industry, and, and they all wanna interact with each other to find on the broker side, the best price and coverage for their customers. On the carrier side, the right risk and the right price, um, uh, to, and, and in the case of claims adjudication, you know, make sure that the claims are, are serviced in a time, timely manner and, and in a, you know, a, a financially viable manner. So what I see in talking to, to customers um, I'll start with underwriting because I, I think there's a, a set of uh, acute challenges there. Um, the first is, you know, I, I like to joke that email is still the, the biggest API in the industry, if you want to think about it that way, right? So 
if we if we think about email as an API, well, it's literally how most brokers and carriers interact today. Not not exclusively, but it's still a dominant uh, dominant uh, way that uh, data is transmitted. And so what happens is, you know, carriers are receiving thousands and thousands of, of submissions from brokers. And because traditionally they've been attacking that in a, in a manual fashion, um, A, they can't literally open and, and, and comprehend the full river of submissions they're getting. They have to simply you know, process as many as they can and then the rest they, they just you know, set aside. Um, second, um, they're not even sure because most of them do kind of a, a, you know, a last in first out kind of approach. They're not even sure that they're evaluating the right uh, submissions that match their, their desired risk profile, et cetera. And then third, um, it still takes them too long to respond to the submission. And when you talk to the, the carriers and the brokers, um, the probability of winning the, 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 the race to the finish line um, is, is dominated by speed, the speed to quote, right? So the fastest quote um, has a huge advantage over the next uh, fastest quote, independent of price or coverage. So those things that are, are kind of the, the ball of, of yarn they're trying to unravel to solve and, and, and drive their business forward on the underwriting side. Yeah, it's funny. I had that I had that conversation with the, one of the leaders at one of the larger insurance companies this week, uh, where they were explicit. Uh, I, I'd rather get speed uh, than efficiency at this point, right? Um, because particularly in the underwriting side, because it's the first it's the first answer that actually usually wins. Not even best, not even necessarily the best answer that wins. That said. Um, Nobody wants to get the wrong answer. And I think that's part of the, I, I think that's also been part of it. Uh, the opportunity for us to drive accuracy, as you say, not just drive efficiency, is, is a key element of what we're seeing here. And it's not that the tech is necessarily able to replace humans. We haven't seen that. Uh, anybody asked me, you know, what can, with this generative AI, how many humans can I replace? The answer is good luck with that. Uh, ain't going to happen. We're going to make people's jobs a whole lot easier. Uh, because we can stop you from having to go scrolling through those 10,000 emails in the day and your eyes glaze over and trying to figure out, is it the third email or the fifth email that had the right submission data? And so I want to shift gears for a second because one of the questions that's come up in the, in the, uh, in the Q&A about, we said we're talking a fair amount about efficiencies, but there's also a question, how do we look at safety and security? And in part, the, the context of the question is about historical data as well. We know we look at historical data, it's how we underwrite. Just look at what happened in the past and then figure out, you know, what is they're going to look like relative to the past. Um, one of the challenges that seems inherent in the use of any technology is how does it work once you throw the data at it? And I'd be curious from your perspective, because you guys are really major innovators in generative AI. How do we look at understanding the secure use of both historical data and submission data together? Yeah, it's a great question. It's a nice sort of corollary benefit to touch on. I like to describe the submissions as the river. Um, not that I've sort of invented this concept, but but I think it's apt here, which is the submissions are really your, your, your river of data. And, and that data accumulates in a lake, right? So you have both a river uh, a challenge to solve and a lake challenge, the lake being sort of the, the legacy data you're describing. And I think the other frustration that, that I hear from carriers when I talk to them is, 
we know we have value in that lake. We just can't get at it because it's it's unstructured and, and, and opaque. And we've we've done a few projects where you know, you know the the uh, actuaries have come to us and said, "Hey, if only we could mine these two three hundred thousand historical claims in our lake, we know we can improve our pricing and risk models." And and by processing that lake, which you can do with our solution, um, we're able to to increase the number of data points, the accuracy of those data points by, you know, order of magnitude. Um, and that's just found intelligence that's sitting there, you know, in, in these various bit buckets in these companies, uh, you know, waiting to be to be mined and, and put to use. So I think the, the river and the lake analogy is a really good one. I think on the, on the, when I think about safety, I always think about trustworthiness, right? And I think that's, when when generative AI has arrived now, we we've all heard about hallucination and challenges with recall. Um, you know, the generative AI models are a little bit finicky, kind of peculiar animals. And um, one thing that you can't do when applying these technologies to these kinds of core uh, commercial decisioning is not be able to govern those decisions, not be able to audit those decisions, not be able to trust those decisions. One of the quickest ways to get a piece of technology uninstalled or, or, or non, not utilized is for the end users to not trust it because they're not going to you know, put their reputation, their, their, their employment on the line by making a mistake that you know, generative AI can, can lead them to. We've all now, I think, heard of the, you know, I guess it's an amusing story where the lawyer used GPT to create a series of, of uh, uh, citations in a court case, and those citations were were you know, made up by, by GPT, not knowing that it's not supposed to make up a citation, even though the citation looked, you know, perfectly legitimate enough so to, to convince this lawyer that they, they were real citations. So that's a core driver, I think, and in, in, in especially in terms of our, um, our engagement together, how do we deliver that, you know, to, to insurers that trustworthiness is so vital when you're talking about underwriting, you know, tens of millions of dollars of risk or adjudicating, you know, uh, multi-million dollar claims. Yeah, so I have a similar opinion. Uh, I, if you'll forgive me, tracing into a into a story for for a moment, one of the things that we learned at Microsoft early on with the use of cognitive AI was uh, you can really screw it up pretty badly if you if you do it wrong. Like the, the right. lawyer uh, not actually grounding any of his uh, research. We launched something in 2016. We, we launched a chatbot called Tay. Well, it turns out uh, apparently Tay is also a short for Taylor Swift, and the guys from Microsoft Research missed that one. Uh, <laughs> but then uh, they, it was an open chatbot, just thrown out on Twitter. How do I communicate? It was a way yeah, to yeah. learn and experience how to, how to do chat early in the days of chatbots. And it took about, what, 24, 48 hours for it to, in a call and response manner, to become a really, really racist teenager. Um, we obviously took it down uh, within a few, within 24 hours, but it was a huge learning for the company along the way that you have to have guardrails in place when you use technology. We'd been putting guardrails in place on our tech for years, but somehow we missed it here. Um, and I'm glad you brought up the responsible use of AI, Tom, because that's part of the story when we look at this technology. How do we put the appropriate guardrails in place? Microsoft then it took a lesson from Tay. One, we actually took it as a as a global learning moment. I remember when, when it happened, I was in the company and 
And, and our CEO uh, called an all hands meeting and said, I'm not firing people who did this. I'm going, we're going to use this as a company-wide learning moment. We opened what became the Office of Responsible AI for Microsoft. Uh, we turned around and created a whole set of principles around how technology and AI in particular should be used, must be used. And from our perspective, the guide rails on when we're allowed to use this technology or even for that matter, sell it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that, you know, there's a reason it's called artificial intelligence. It, it is not true intelligence. Uh, I think it's why, you know, we we have invested a lot in the human in the loop aspects of our product uh, to ensure that at all times um, users can do at least two of the following things. One, evaluate the output, confirm it, correct it, you know, before sending it down to a, a final decisioning platform or decisioning person. Um, and second, uh, to be ex able to explain it at all times. And I think that that explainability is, is really vital. Now, generative AI has tremendous uh, capabilities. The word generative is, is a very important word to pay attention to. It is generating content. Um, and, and that generation um, is not perfect. So the ability to validate that content back to source material, you know, the original submissions is, is really valuable and imperative. And um, both the explainability of the AI and the human loop um, access to the AI uh, are, are simply must-haves if you're going to deploy this inside the enterprise. And, and those are you know, two things that um, our product has, has uh, always had in, in, in core to the philosophy we have about how to use this responsibly. And, and with the arrival of generative AI, how do you leverage its extraordinary capabilities? Because I think we all agree it is truly extraordinary as a, as a, a technology moment, um, but do that responsi responsibly. I mean, I think we will look back on the arrival of, of generative AI, it will be as revolutionary as, as the, the mobile phone, as the browser. You know, it, it has that kind of, of impact potential, um, even though we're, we're five minutes into it. Yeah, I, I think uh, I, I want to credit Indica without, their, without turning this into just a love fest, but I think you guys have actually done some amazing, uh, uh, amazing use of technology and business process that needs to be called out. Generative AI can generate content, as you say, the ability to then provide the link back to what sources did I look at is a way of, uh, it gives us the ability to not only provide traceability, it provides a measure of protection and security around the decision-making itself. Just from whether you think of it from a compliance perspective, and, and as we talk with the regulatory bodies about this quite a bit, the ability to actually turn around and say, hey, I've, this is the output, but here's also the input. Uh, and then that connection is a key element of, of uh, how it can be used in the real world at scale. The first time you come up with an output that doesn't have a link to the input is the first time that the regulators go, okay, that's great, you're done. Yeah. Uh, and also, frankly, it's a one-way ticket to making bad decisions. Uh, and so from that perspective, we have, you know, what you've done around sort of mapping out not just generative AI, the citation piece, but actually doing the full loop with traceability is, I think, a, a key value that I think you guys bring to the table. Uh, that said, one of the questions that's come up has been the idea of, well, that's great. I can make these decisions that are grounded in my own data, but what if my own data is bad? Like what we, we all know uh, that insurance data, particularly in the property space, is inherently biased. 
uh, insurance data in the life space is also pretty biased too in certain classifications. Uh, so from that perspective, there's been an interesting question that's been sort of looked at in research circles around how, can we use this technology to eliminate bias? And while it's not a question that that necessarily um, comes up in every conversation, I thought it would be useful for us to just to dip in on it a, a little bit because we've seen in some of the stuff we've, we've been looking at at Microsoft with some of our customers, uh, the question that's fundamentally related to eliminating bias, how do I compare what I have with what I already had with what I'm getting now. So how do I compare the information yep. coming in in a submission with my historical data? And the ability to say where the where you are and where you are not is actually the ability to find using generative AI, a discriminatory model. That is to say, I can discriminate between the two pieces. One of the interesting things we're starting to see people use it for is identify where the historical data is not matching current from the perspective of the historical data is imbuing bias, particularly racial bias. Uh, so it's an interesting question for us. Is this technology ready for us to say, hey, we can eliminate bad data? I have, a, I have an opinion on that. My opinion is no, not yet, but we're on the path to identify maybe where the gaps are in our historical data around bias. Any thoughts from your perspective on that? One of the really interesting things about AI, and again, I, I like to kind of point out that that word artificial, right? One of the really interesting opportunities it brings to the table is for, for us to codify the way we've been making decisions, right? In, in a, in, it's a forcing function that hasn't really existed prior. So when you create an artificial intelligence approach to a problem, um, it forces you to really think hard about the training data, right? Because again, AI is as good as it's as it's trained, or as bad as it's trained, to be honest. Um, and so that that forcing function allows for two things. One is you can really wring out bias in the in this decisioning, and bias takes many forms. It can be, you know, th there's the way I think it, we most popular, the most popular way we think about bias, which is, you know, a uh, uh, racial or gender discrimination, those kinds of things. Those are those are sort of very negative uh, uh, bias outcomes. Then there's just bad decisioning, right? Like I'm, I'm underwriting risk I shouldn't. Um, the model is, or, or our decisions have been biased historically in a way that we weren't even aware of. One of the fascinating things that we find when we uh, deploy a new customer and we go through the, the training cycle to, to build uh, the custom models and workflows to begin to uh, deliver this bionic arm experience is pretty quickly, if you involve more than a handful of folks to, to provide contribution to that training data, you realize that there are different opinions sitting around the table that they weren't aware of. And that those decisions that they've been doing for 20 or 30 years uh, have inherent uh, uh, variability that they were not tracking. And yeah. so to your point about sort of bad data, it forces, you know, I've sat through some of these, these workshops with customers and it forces some fascinating discussions around, well, wait a minute, how how have we been making these decisions, underwriting claims, et cetera? How should we be making these decisions? And forcing that discussion to get to a much better, you know, sort of codification of, of the, uh, the decisioning that they're trying to get with the company and thus removing errors, removing bias, um, accelerating decisioning with confidence and trust. Um, so, it, it is artificial intelligence still. It's as good as you train it, 
but but that's been a terrific forcing function, I think, to to drive better decision making. That's uh, yeah. So it sounds like we're we're seeing it. I think this is these are very early days, but there's actually some surprises, I think, in terms of this because we've actually had to we've driven a, a, a shall we say a sharper look at process and how yep. we actually think about it. Hey, we've been doing this for decades. Wait a second. You've been doing the wrong things for decades. And let's say you've been wrong, just to say that we now have an opportunity, as you say, to really rethink where we are, just in terms of how we train or how we ground our, our data uh, in, in, a, in an AI role, but also how do we even look at underwriting fundamentally? Yeah, I think to your point, it's not something they've been doing it the wrong way, but they're not aware of the degree of variability in their decisions that they've made over the past decades. And so to trust the outcomes of the past decades is maybe a little bit of a uh, of a risky thing. And, and quite literally, when we think about things like risk models and pricing models, going back in time and processing some of that historical data or reprocessing it um, allows for you know a better baseline. So definitely an opportunity there as well, to your point about being able to compare A to B and and do that at scale, importantly, right? The, I think the the actuarial use case I, I described, I think the customer had calculated it was going to take them three person years um, to, to, to do it manually, to, to get at that data manually. And, and therefore they said, well, we're not going to do that. Um, and, and, you know, they, they said, we just don't have time to do that. Um, you know, with, with this approach, they were able to do it in, in a few weeks, you know, and have that data uh, ready for, for use in these models. I mean, I, I always joke that, you know, Actuaries, when you think about it, they're sort of the original data scientists, right? I mean, if you go way back in time, they're they're the original data scientists. They they appreciate this idea of high quality data in, you know, high high uh, decision fidelity coming out more than anybody. Yeah, I agree with you there. I'm going to shift gears for a sec on us, if you don't mind, because I thought it'd be useful sort of as we look at it. We've been talking about the sort of puppies and rainbows piece of our broad of our capabilities these days. Like, here's all the cool things we can do that we didn't think we could do. Right. We know we can do a lot better with submissions now because, hey, you've got the ability to, to really read at that. And we know that we can do an awful lot around just using summaries as a, a summaries of data to actually then provide a new lens on the data. And that's been very cool. Um, but I actually thought it'd be useful to talk a little bit about the, the part that we see misconceptions coming in. Like, what are, the, what are some of those sort of common misconceptions you're seeing about what it can do and what it can't do, this new generative AI? I think that some of our learnings that have been really interesting is um, just a little bit of, of human supervision uh, to a generative AI approach um, has a dramatic positive effect on, on, on its capabilities. That um, it's a little bit, uh, it's a little naive to think you can just set it and forget it. Um, that, that's not been our, our experience. That when we've compared that approach, complete hands-off, you know, zero shot as it's known, to uh, more small shot with a bit of supervision, boy, that, that's that been a world of difference. So it's very consistent with this sort of co-pilot or bionic arm concept that that, that is the best practice here, not just for um, trustworthiness, but for, for efficacy, for accuracy, if you want to think about it that way. Um, so I think that's been powerful. I think that um, there, it's, it's very easy to build a compelling prototype today with this technology, and and we see that all over the place. I think, and, and and they are compelling, right? I mean, it, it's a good way to start. Um, it's sort of the art of the possible. I think we're entering the phase now, especially where uh, as these prototypes start to gain traction from whether it's from a vendor or, or built internally, where the governance, compliance, and and data protection folks 
uh, you know, show up to the table and say, hang on a second here and, and start to ask a bunch of hard questions. I often think about Gen AI, I think it's more apt to think about it as a new programming language than, than a new application. And the reason I say that is, imagine if, you know, tomorrow all of your employees magically became Java programmers, right? Like every employer at, at, at Major Insurer X woke up and knew Java. Would you say to those folks, hey, knock yourself out. You're free to write any kind of software you want now because you know Java and deploy it. Well, of course you wouldn't. Like any, anyone would say that's a ludicrous concept. What about QA? What about you know compliance? Where are we going to store the code? Who's going to review the code? All the things we do with software. That's coming for, for Gen AI as well. All you would do though is replace a lot of the words I just said with prompts. Who can write a prompt? Where do the prompts get stored? What prompt was used at what time to generate what data? What version of what large language model was used to, to generate that data at what time? These are all enterprise scale questions that are now starting to, to come into the fore as you know, InfoSec and IT and, and governance gets, gets involved and says, well, wait a minute, you know, we need to apply the same kind of rigor to the use of, of Gen AI that we would to any kind of new uh, tool that can generate data, right? And, and so that's why I think the, that comparison to, to software programming is, is a, a pretty strong one in those regards anyways. It's funny you say that because one of the things that I've started to see is a number of IT departments in insurance companies have started to look at, uh, okay, if I'm going to, they've, they've understood the problem that you've addressed and, and assessed. Yep. A number of them said, okay, great. Well, I'm going to treat it like the rest of my IT. And I'm going to say, I'm going to build my own models because then I can control them. Like, great. So I'm going to try to build uh, my own large language model and try to deploy it. And then say, all right, I don't have to worry about version because it's my version. I, you know, I'm going to continue to train that model, train that model, train that model. My own take is I'm not sure that plays and, and for, for a number of reasons. One is just consider the training that is done uh, on existing systems. The largest open source model today, uh, I believe, is, is Llama 2 uh, that I could, I could then go retrain on top yep. of and, uh, that's got 70 billion parameters. GPT-3 has three times that, and GPT-4 has 10 times GPT-3. Uh, this number is not official, but that's basically what we believe. Uh, if you're looking at that, you're going to turn people into sort of low-level programmers in some respects, as opposed to saying, hey, let me use the appropriate tool. And one of the things I love about what generative AI gives us the ability to, exactly as you, as you said, is to issue prompts. So rather than trying to retrain the core language and relearn Java every time, we can use the core language and ground it. And I think that's one of the fundamental misconceptions we're seeing is, it, on the one hand, the need to control my environment so that I don't let it loose and have everybody become a Java programmer in my company without uh, the appropriate guide rail, is to say, all right, then I'm going to train everybody like they're a low-level engineer. It doesn't work. On the other hand, there do need to be the guardrails in place. And one of the cool things I think about in terms of how generative AI has developed, particularly the GPT models uh, have developed, is our ability to lever a staid model with then technology on top, an application layer, like what Indica brings to the table, uh, gives us the ability to focus in on training people to become, to manage the prompts, to training people to figuring out 
how do I point the pro- the solution at the problem I'm trying to solve as opposed right. to having everybody become complete generalists in the deep tech? Um, yeah, and I think you know it points out that one of the places I think generative AI will have huge impacts is is generically speaking on on workflows, enterprise workflows. I think workflows become increasingly front and center in every aspect of every business. And, and Gen AI has, has some huge opportunities there. I think through an insurance, right? Whether it's underwriting claims, policy servicing, you know, ultimately those are all workflows, whether they're done by people or technology, there are workflows of some kind happening. Um, and so that, again, back to the sort of, you know, co-pilot and bionic arm concept, um, that's that's a, a huge opportunity. Yeah, it's funny that the uh, when when I speak with with carriers and I, I do quite a bit, they give me almost universally within the first thirty to sixty minutes of a conversation uh, with a business leader uh, around AI that we have our list of projects we want to go do, and we're keeping an informal tally over at Microsoft right now. The lists range from fifty projects to one hundred and fifty projects. Yeah. Nobody's got a list of here's the two or three. It's like, oh, I can do this. This this becomes, you know, my Swiss Army knife of of things I can go do with with AI because generative AI changes the way we look at operations. So they go, all right, which ones do I do first? For sure. And and, and part of the interesting challenge has been to identify how do we, you know, pick the first one and the next one and the next one uh, as it's coming along. So from my uh, from my perspective, we're coming at it with, with, with saying, but well, there's some ones that are very easy to do that are very, you know, that don't take an awful lot of, you know, don't take an awful lot of work and don't really change the way people do their job, just make it a whole lot easier. For example, if I want to, you know, if anybody is in a company of any size, they have at some point a knowledge base, right? They have some sort of intranet site that's got a little search bar at the top and the search bar at the top is going to go try to search and everybody's become an expert at trying to figure out how to write the right question. Yep. We don't have to do that anymore. We can just point GPT at that and go with semantic search. Tom, that's one of the first things you said. Semantic search is so easy. We can just do it, right? That's the thing. As we get to the cases around, all right, now how do we go to my core insurance processes? Now you actually have to start thinking about the question, what problem are you actually trying to solve? Because if the problem I'm trying to solve is how do I OCR or how do I, you know, how do I actually know have a computer be able to look at what this thing is? That's that's a relatively simple problem. If the problem I'm trying to solve is how do I know what that submission is and how does it fit into my business process, then that becomes a higher level problem. And that's where I think application software really, really comes in. I wouldn't just say comes in handy. I think it becomes essential uh, to how they do it. So the guidance we're providing to carriers now is, look, you can use the tool, the base tools for the simple stuff, but when it comes down to doing the more complicated stuff, ask yourself, what problem am I trying to solve? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I think I've, I, you know, I didn't, didn't invent this, but I've seen it. I think it's a useful uh, uh, way to frame the problem is if you imagine a two by two matrix, you know, the, the question is how, how complex is is the problem and, and what is the, the cost of it being wrong? Uh, the answer being wrong. And, you know, that's a good way to kind of think about, not that you shouldn't do those, those kinds of use cases, but to your point about, um, it's more than just a prototype using, you know, ChatGPT. Uh, there's a lot more to think about when you're in that upper right quadrant. Um, I think that, you know, the the internet search would be a good one where it's like it's a high scale problem, but a low low risk problem, right? So I think you can, uh, and I think that's why we've seen a lot of customers you know, start there. 
I think I always push customers when when we come to a meeting and they say, well, we want to use Gen AI for this problem. I always say, well, you're sort of giving the answer before you've asked the question. So let's let's back up a little bit and, and make sure we understand what questions are trying to be answered here. Maybe it's the right approach. Maybe it's not the right approach. But but regardless, what is the outcome you're trying to drive? What is the difference between today and tomorrow you would like to see? And then let's work backwards to get there and, and figure out you know what the right uh, what the right prescription is for that. So I think that's broadly something we've found to be super valuable is to get the team together with a customer um, and really start there and do a bunch of uh, sort of discovery uh, in terms of outcomes that are going to make this a, a win, you know, at, at the end of the day. It, it seems obvious, but I get it. It's It can get lost in the fog, right? Like we think we understand the project. We think we know why we're doing it, but getting that next level of, of definition is really vital. Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I agree with you. And this is one of the things where I think the difference between getting a really good prototype and getting a really good result uh, really gets distinguished. If yeah. you get a really good prototype, you can show off the tech. Hey, look at all this tech I can use. What can I do for it? Great. Yeah. You want to actually get a good business result. I think you start with what problem am I trying to solve? You figure out the parameters of that problem. This is standard, almost business school 101, if you will, right? Yeah. Uh, what problem am I trying to solve? What are the what are the metrics I think I'm going to be trying to impact? And then from there, how do I hypothesize? What are the what are the capabilities I need to get from point A to point B? And that's when you pull in the tech. Um, now the cool thing is, uh, the tech has gotten a whole lot better at doing a whole lot more things, particularly around summarizing, creating content, guessing what the next word in the sentence would be, because that's what yep. GPT does. Those types of things are really critical for uh, giving us the ability to solve a lot more problems. But at the end of the day, we still got to come back to, you know, what problem am I trying to solve? Great example, uh, some work we're doing together in in terms of just submissions uh, for, uh, you know, submissions for claims for commercial entities, right? I got a, if I've got a commercial property claim, I have business interruption, I have all of the, you know, I have to figure out how many days lost of revenue I have, you know, I got to figure out also what are the specific damages, if I have any liability, any contingent liability. And what ends up happening when somebody gives that submission is they throw in a thousand documents, three emails, two reports, a fire brigade report right. and so forth. And, and somebody's got to go sort all through all of that. That's the problem we look at. And then we decompose it into, all right, what do I do? Well, I need to understand first, you know, what's the, what, where's the data? How do I actually get the right summary of what I'm looking at? How do I understand what I'm looking at? How to, how to query it? How do I put it in the right spots? That's when you start to look at the end-to-end -end solution. And I think if customers or carriers come at it from that perspective, problem, hypothesis, solution, a whole lot more value than if they come, hey, what can I use this tech for? You know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just for the audience, if you'd like now with, with 10 minutes remaining to, to um, add your questions to the question window uh, in the uh, webinar, uh, go to webinar software, uh, we can start to, to take those. I think we've, we've seen a few uh, flow in here now. Um, maybe go, so, so this is kind of a little bit building on your, your last point, Jim, uh, a question is, is maybe um, beyond uh, you know, beyond the sort of internet search you've seen as as a low hanging, you know, use case that you're you're seeing tackled. Maybe what are the what are the two or three others that that are 
jumping up when in, in your travels when you talk to uh, insurers in terms of uh, maybe the the ones who've who've gone down the path a little bit further and and have that sort of outcome framing? What what are they what are they tackling next? Do you think with this technology? Uh, yeah, so I think I'm going to circle back my answer to the the very first problem we identified. Uh, the insurance industry itself is facing some substantial financial impacts. Mm. So the first question is, how can I save money? Right? I had no. I had a friend in the insurance industry who said insurers make money three ways: they sell more policies, they pay less on the policies they've actually got, and they make money on float. Uh, and so focusing in on the how do I pay less on the policies that I got, that's not to screw customers, but to avoid cost and be much more efficient. If loss ratios are going the wrong way, the question is, how do I actually make my business more efficient and more accurate in the use of claims? So that's where we're seeing the use of the question of how do I take in data around my claims in a manner where I can use that data very efficiently and more importantly, very accurately. So those questions come in a ton. And this isn't just about, you know, submissions of, of, of commercial claims like we talked about, you know, just a few minutes ago. But things like I've made a first notice of loss call and I've got to summarize that call. Well, somebody's manually doing that today. Well, I can yep. use the technology to give you a pretty good summary and a pretty searchable summary with some traceability to it. That's a very high value add because it lowers two things. It lowers the cost of manual operations, but it also speeds up claim. And everybody knows faster claims are not only improve customer satisfaction, they tend to be cheaper claims. Um, yeah, there's a question that's sort of as a corollary to that. Um, can Gen AI be used to analyze and interpret insurance policies? And what I would say to that, just building on your last point, is not only can it be used to kind of summarize FNOL, um, you could then take that summary and, and ask it to Compare it to the the policy in force and and start to you know generate uh, a, a, an initial view of um, these losses appear to be covered these losses appear to be not covered right and so that that uh, ability to respond to the customer quickly which the same is true on the claim side is is an underwriting an underwriting your speed to quote has a huge impact on winning the business yeah. in claims your speed to servicing has a huge impact on renewal and, and, and customer satisfaction. So um, it is funny. I, I think that maybe going into this a few years ago, I would have said that eliminating or reducing costs would be number one on the list uh, of, of, of benefits from AI. This is prior to Gen AI. You know, this, this is, you know, the dawn of kind of AI in the enterprise. More and more what I hear is it's all about speed, 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 which which is tied to efficiency, right? If I'm more efficient, I'm faster. You know, if, if I'm more efficient as an underwriter, I can get to a quote faster. If I'm more efficient as a as a, as a claims uh, adjuster, I can get to that adjudication faster. Um, I think it's partly because um, if you look at the, the pressure that some of the big carriers have had from the insure tech startups who start with a blank canvas, they don't have legacy, you know, uh, technology and process, but they also don't have the advantage of scale what I see is the care, the carriers that that we primarily work with, the big established carriers, are looking to use this as a, a, a leveling of the playing field number one. Um, so so they're not disadvantaged by their legacy process and technology. But number two, a way to really exploit the scale advantages they have in their balance sheets and so forth. So that those unlocks are very front and center, I think, to um, to the adoption and, and enthusiasm of these technologies. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, at the risk of agreeing with everything you said, I agree with everything you said. One thing, if specific use case, that might jump off the page, though, around in terms of interpreting and analyzing uh, contracts. A couple of carriers we've talked with have gone down the route of actually looking particularly at complex contracts, whether you're thinking about a treaty with re or yep. thinking about like a, a you know a large enterprise who's got a, a multi-layered contract. There's a lot of posting over the wall. Here's this change to this term. Here's this change to that term and so on. Yep. The ability of generative AI actually to compare and identify adherence to standard terms versus non-standard terms yep. is yep. really important. And it's actually something that's really easy to do because the alternative to doing that is having a human eyeball things uh, and go, oh, you know, where am I in that contract? Yep. That is not only an efficiency driver, it's an accuracy driver. And it plays out in underwriting and in contracts, but it also plays out in claims because we see this where we'll have people who have, you know, I'm, I'm on the 2017 version of this contract, the 2019 version of that contract, and uh, the ability to actually correlate the claim back to the actual contract term. That's a key element of understanding how we can be more effective, not just more efficient. Absolutely. I've heard the, the very same uh, pain point, you know, that I think that the, one of the secrets in the insurance industry is that, especially in commercial lines, when a claim comes in, it often has to go to a lawyer to go read the policy and, and, and make a determination. So, it's you know, that, that is a slow <laughs> and an expensive process, right? Yeah, yeah. And not, not, to, not to disrespect any lawyers, but lawyers, no. generally speaking, don't like just having to go look up stuff. That's not why they went to law school. Hundred percent. Yeah, and I think that the, the funny part about we we touched on the sort of ability to alter headcount with this technology. What I found is that the reality, at least in the United States, is that we're still in a very tight labor market. Um, if anything, carriers are frustrated they can't find more underwriters, uh, you know, or or claims adjudicators. It's a, it's a skilled position, and there just aren't. It's not like there are tens of thousands of, of people, uh, you know, uh, available to hire in those regards. So this this efficiency gain is 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 not so much a, um, you know, I, I want to reduce headcount. I've, I've not heard that once. It's much more if my business doubles in five years, I don't think I can find the people to to, to do that. Um, so how will I do that? You know, if, if those are my goals, I think that is very much the framing that that I've heard in, in talking to. Uh, our customers and prospects. I, I think that's uh, very similar to what we're seeing as well. Uh, what I think that we're going to see is, a, is a, a scaling of this. One of the interesting things when you look at scaling is you're going to see scaling out. How What are the additional use cases that I'm getting at, but also scaling up. I thought I'd end sort of the, the Microsoft view, and this is it, is it to quote a, somebody who was quoting somebody else inside my company. Uh, you know, nobody gets on an airplane these days and goes, oh, good, the autopilot's here, uh, we can fly. They often don't get on the plane and say, oh, good, the co-pilot's here, we can fly. You know, yeah. say, oh, okay, the pilot's there, we can fly. We're going to use this technology to enable the people who are flying the plane for the company uh, have to do their jobs a little bit easier, take road tasks out of their way, but do it in a manner where we can let that person be much more effective at their job. That'll enable us lateral scale because they'll be able to do more things. Yep. It also enables us to do vertical scale because they won't be stuck in the weeds on the, the sort of the mundane, but also the analytics themselves, the, the prep work that, that they could otherwise be 
using for, for much more effective tasks. Yep, absolutely. Well, I think we're at time, Jim. So uh, uh, really enjoyed this. I think we, we, we dug into a number of, of critical areas here. So uh, hope the uh, audience enjoyed the conversation. We'll make this available on recording as well, but uh, certainly enjoyed talking to you today. Always a pleasure to chat with you, Tom. And thanks again for your time. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Unstructured Unlocked. You can find all of our episodes wherever you listen to podcasts today. Spotify, Apple, everywhere. Be sure to follow at Indico Data on Twitter and YouTube. Have a good day, Automator.